Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your audience? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience responds to? Are you spending more time building reports than listening in on what your audience wants? These are not easy questions to answer. That's why our great friends at MDT Marketing are offering a free audit of your marketing efforts. Head to www.mdtmarketing.com edup and submit your information for your free consultation today. Look, guys, you got nothing to lose. It's free. I don't know why you wouldn't want a free audit to tell you what you're doing, whether it's effective, and how you can make some incremental changes that can make a big difference moving forward. That's www.mdtmarketing.com slash edup. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. Boy, do we have somebody with us that uh, probably needs no introduction. And, and before I get to her and her smiling face, I would like to know from you, Liz, now that you've seen me do this introduction on video, is it is as you imagined? Or am I going too slow? Or do you imagine I do it faster with the microphone in front of my face? I'm actually really proud of you. You've learned a lot. So my tutoring sessions have worked. You're, you're getting better and better. Oh, my gosh. Every it's, week. It's, it's intense. I don't know if I can handle you half the time, but, but I am learning. Um, my name is Dr. Joe Salustio, and I almost forgot to say my name yet again. And always with me, my amazing co-host, Elizabeth Liba, who, by the way, uh, has started and is now successfully leading a Black History and Culture Academy where she teaches all about uh, Black history. So Liz, how is that going? It's actually going amazing. The platform launched last month. Like it's been about six weeks now total, um, just in time for Black History Month. I have 130 students as of now taking micro learning courses, 20 courses in African history and culture, African-American history and culture, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I'm super proud, super excited. It's beyond my wildest dreams, and I'm excited to see what continues to happen as the year goes on, but I'm very happy. She's the phenom, ladies and gents. Thank you so much. And the reason I haven't introduced our guest, I was wondering, you know, now that we're on video, really for one of the first times, who just Google her real fast and go, who's who's this lady over here? Well, she happens to be a big hitter in the world of higher education. Heavy hitter, heavy hitter. Her name is Dr. Mary Schmidt Campbell, and she's president at Spelman College. Mary, welcome to the Edup Experience. How are you? Thank you. It's so good to be here. We're very excited to have you. I think we've got a lot to talk about. So get settled in. Uh, your team told us we have you for three hours. Is that correct? <laughs> okay, so that seems like that's not correct. Then. Not correct. Okay. You're, you're cheating me. I thought it was going to be six. No. Oh, <laughs> only if you want a three-year-old and a six-year-old in my area to be joining over here. So, well, yes. we're excited because, you know, look, uh, um, uh, you know, boy, HBCUs have had a heck of a year. 
uh, have they not? Um, uh, ups and downs, a lot of uh, uh, donations to the end of the year from uh, Mackenzie Scott to certain HBCUs. There's been, I think, a resurgence. We've talked to a couple of HBCU presidents who have seen resurgence in applications and interested students. But before we go and, and talk about uh, uh, the work that you're doing, because I think anybody who knows higher ed knows Spelman College. I, I, if you don't, you're not paying attention, frankly. Um, but I want to talk to you real fast and, uh, as the financial person about financial models, um, because I, I watched a video of you on your site where you were talking about um, uh, uh, that you went to a well-endowed liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. And there were questions about sustainability at a well-endowed liberal arts college. And so now you go to Spelman and you're dealing with a, a population of student, black students who uh, by and large household income is far and away below. Did I say far long? Did I stretch that out and made it seem long? Because it is when you look at the statistics way below um, white families. And how do you operate a college given that uh, the students economically are in a worse position and how do you get them to the point where they're making more money and able to afford higher ed? Dr. Joe, you ask a really great question. And it is true. I did go to a very well endowed uh, college. And when I was a member of the board some 20, 30 years ago, I recall the admissions director stood up at a board meeting and said, what makes you think that even the wealthiest families in this country are going to continue to pay the rising cost of tuition to send their children to elite private schools? He asked that question of a rich college three decades ago. So here we are three decades later. And in fact, those rising tuitions have made it a challenge, not just for, for black families, but for families across the board to consider costs when they're making a choice of where to send their son or their daughter to school. Now you add to that for HBCUs, you add to that the fact that the median income for African-American families is something like $56,000, right? The annual income. Um, when you think of the fact that at Spelman, our tuition room and board is $50,000, how can we be, how, how, we have to begin to think at what point do we become unaffordable to the very demographic that we were designed to serve? And frankly, that was a question that we asked, that we posed to ourselves about three years ago. And, and our board of trustees said, okay, let's step back and let's begin to think about what steps we have to take as a college to begin to solve this problem. Yeah, and you know, quick follow-up too, just uh, before, before I pass it to Liz, because I know she's excited. There is traditionally within higher ed, there's this sliding scale of, um, you know, quality education, if you make it more affordable, are you diluting the quality of education? So administrators around the country are wrestling with that, especially when you're dealing with faculty, whether they're tenured or not, who go, well, wait a minute, I don't, I, you know, what is that going to mean for the quality of student? What is a quality student? Is there a blue pill and a red pill? And you take one if you're a quality student, and if you take the other one, you're a non-quality student. 
how do you balance that conversation? Because it must be happening to some degree at some level going, how are we going to serve everyone, but also maintain brand and reputation uh, that you have today? We have taken a look at um, several ways that we can um, approach this issue. One is just raise more financial aid. Just, 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 you know, keep our prices exactly where they are and just go out and, and full blast, just raise, you know, tens of millions of dollars. That's, that's one solution. Um, another solution is to take a look at all of the component parts of college and say, how can we make each of them more affordable? So take books, for example. Well, it turns out if students don't have to purchase textbooks, which are unbelievably expensive, if they can get them through either some open source um, comparable text or they can rent them or otherwise lower just the cost of, of getting their textbooks, that's more affordable. If you can give them options to be able to bring in credits like their AP credits or their uh, uh, baccalaureate, international baccalaureate credits, you can perhaps shorten their time to degree. Or maybe they can take summer school courses in your college that are deeply discounted that will be cheaper and again, shorten time to degree, maybe three and a half years or three years. So, so there's affordability. Then there is the actual looking at your business model and saying, well, what alternative sources of revenue can I bring in so I don't have to depend on tuition and raising the tuition every year. And so over you know, five, 10 years, the tuition has gone up considerably. What can I do to maybe subsidize the operations, provide more financial aid through bringing in alternative revenue sources? And Spelman is looking at every single one of those options. Speaking of component parts, I'd like to introduce you to my component part on the Edip Experience, Liz. <laughs> that was a good segue. Did you like good that? Job. By the way, by the way, um, what's a textbook? Said the digital native, right? Just for the record. I know. The first question my students tend to ask me when I'm teaching a class, I teach English composition. So you think they would be like so gung ho for the textbook, but usually they're like, uh, it's a textbook required. <laughs> and I've, I've taught, I've started to teach for a lot of community colleges are going textbook optional. Like Dr. Campbell, like Dr. Schmidt Campbell actually alluded to the idea of open educational resources, putting together um, resources so the student doesn't have to purchase a textbook. So it's really a salient point that there's a lot of things that we can do as a sector and each institution has a role to play in helping to bring, back, bring down the cost of college. I want to talk about the role of HBCUs because I'm so much of a fan of what the HBCU does for the black community. And I think there are quite a lot of people um, in the mainstream culture and across the country that don't really know and understand just how important, important HBCUs are to the black community and to the economy of the country as a whole. Can you speak to us a little bit, uh, Dr. Schmidt Campbell, about the idea of Spelman College particularly has an amazingly revered role in the black community as one of the first HBCUs in the country, a women's college that is educating black women. We know that HBCUs are one of the highest um, percentage in terms of when we think about doctors and lawyers and engineers and nurses. Can you speak to what Spelman College has done and the role of the HBCU in the success of um, the black community overall? 
I'd love to, Liz. Um, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna make a a, a confession here, uh, and that is that when I my first time visiting Spelman was in the fall of uh, 2014. I had retired, and um, I thought I was on my riding off into the sun retirement sunset. And I was invited to come back to Spelman to um, be a consultant for an arts building that they were planning. And I was asked to speak to the faculty and students about you know, how they would organize themselves for this arts building. And it was really the first time that I, I sat down and looked at statistics from Spelman. And, and what I discovered was astonishing. Spelman has a, a six-year graduation rate of 75%. That is 30 percentage points over the national average and over the national average for black or white or Asian students altogether, right? Um, Spelman College produces more black women who complete PhDs in STEM fields than any other college or university in the country. Not any other HBCU or any other women's college, but in the country. Um, I began to look really closely at the quality of their writing program, the research opportunities. They have students and you know going into research labs at the Broad Institute or at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, participating in serious research. Um, we send more black students abroad than anybody else. You know, three quarters of my graduating class, not um, this past year, but the year before had studied abroad. And so therefore also uh, almost every student on this campus speaks more than one language. And all of these, all of these facts were just a, a revelation to me. And, and what it said is that if you create the right climate and culture and environment, you can do wonders. And what I saw on this campus was a faculty who loves their students. They're tough on their students. They're demanding on their students. They don't let their students cut corners, but they love their students. And the students understand that. And that enables them to open up in a way that I think in some environments, they're not quite able to completely open up. Yeah, for sure. We had uh, Dewan Warmack, Dr. Uh, Dewan Warmack from Claflin College. One of the things uh -huh. he talked about was speaking life into the students and at the HBCU, how it's like, look left, look right. I am my brother's keeper. Yes. Some of the philosophies that are very prevalent there. What can, you talked about graduation rates and how the graduation rates at Spelman and some of the markers of success and some of those outcomes are so much better, not only for HBCUs, but also across the board for all, for all colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. What philosophies or strategies do you think that the greater higher education sector needs to model that you see at Spelman and at other HBCUs? Because I think one of the things that the rest of higher ed at other campuses tends to struggle with is there isn't like the differentiation, right? We know that students mm -hmm. that are coming from predominantly black neighborhoods, from neighborhoods that maybe the, the K through 12 system is not as um, resourced as some of the other um, neighborhoods that maybe students are coming from, they're coming in with a different set of challenges. 
what can what advice can you give to higher education in general in terms of strategies or initiatives or support mechanisms that you have on campus that give you those amazing results that you're seeing with your student body? So, so there are a few things. One, one, and one we we discovered, or I will say affirmed, I won't say we discovered it, but we affirmed fairly recently with data. And that is we realized that when students are best performing students, those who with nearly 100% graduation rates and high GPAs almost always were part of a cohort. They might have been a part of our women in STEM cohort or our wisdom scholars, our women in spiritual uh, development of ministry. Um, they may have been our social justice scholars. They may have been our community service scholars, but they belong to a cohort of students who had a common purpose, um, who had almost always a faculty advisor, sometimes also a staff advisor. And inside those cohorts, they very often had, had research experiences, had field experiences, some kind of, of service or internship or something that gave them something outside of the classroom to support what they had learned inside of the classroom. Um, and that the cohort had continuity from one year to the next. I mean, you know, we're a small college, we're 2000, but still that's 2000 women. You can't walk into 2000 and completely feel a part, you feel a part of your neighborhood, right? Maybe your residence hall, but your, your cohort is part of that sort of neighborhood that we create. The other thing that we discovered also, again, by looking at the data, is that you know we have this wonderful concept of sisterhood, the Spelman sisterhood, that that you establish from the time you walk into Spelman, and you take it with you when you graduate. So anytime you see a Spelman sister somewhere in the world, there's an immediate connection. And what that sisterhood assumes is that you are ambitious for yourself. There's no question about that, but you're also ambitious for the student on your right and the student on your left, and for everybody who is there at the school. And so it's not unusual for me to walk across campus and for a student to say, President Campbell, President Campbell, she just got accepted to Yale, yeah, and everybody's clapping her. Not I just got accepted to Yale, she did, right, for graduate school. So this notion of, of celebrating each other's success and also um, being responsible for each other's success, we were able to take during COVID, we took about 40 or 50 students who had been part of what we call a peer assistance program. They would help out with tutoring, you know, when we were here in person. And we assigned each of them five first year students. And we said, these students are your responsibility. You're gonna, you, you can help tutor them, but also be there for them. Do something fun with them, have spa night or some of them would have Bible study, or some would have a movie night, or some would have meditation or yoga night. But in addition to helping them with their schoolwork, you also formed a relationship and you give them their, your text, your cell phone number so they can text you if they have a question. And we found that that was a phenomenal way for using the human capital of our students to reach out put a hand out, the upper upper class students, the juniors and seniors, 
to put a hand out and help the, the first year students along. So we, we've discovered that that can be a very potent support mechanism. So, so really being, we're being trying to be much more intentional about those strategies that really work for us and work well. You know, Liz, before you uh, ask your next question, because I see you gearing up for it, I know when you get ready. Uh, I, we had, um, uh, uh, Dr. Shmuel Campbell, we had uh, Alan Golston on the podcast recently from the Gates Foundation, the oh, yeah. head of U.S. programs for the Gates Foundation. Right. He was talking about their main goal being eliminating race, ethnicity, and income as predictors for success and what higher education mm -hmm. needs to do to do that. Mm -hmm. And I listened to you talk and that's, I, I'm hearing the answer, you know, HBCUs and you hear, you go back a year and everybody's talking about HBCUs, a lot of them being in danger of closing. Oh, the most likely school to close is an HBCU because of this or because of that. What, if you want to, if you want to eliminate race, ethnicity and income as a predictor for success for black populations, you need HBCUs because of what you just talked about mentoring and, and so on. So Liz, I just wanted to bring that to the forefront because I heard him talk about that. And then uh, Mary just gave the answer, mentoring and handholding and neighborhood and community. It's, it's a huge answer that higher ed struggles to find. And I want to add something else, Liz, because you mentioned that all the things that you're um, teaching. Can you say those again? Because I want to comment on that. Yeah, I, in the platform, it's micro learning. So it's short courses, like four module courses. So someone could do it over their lunch break. It's not something like a semester long. It's designed for like a working adult or someone that doesn't have a lot of time. I've had some parents tell me they, do, they go through it with their kids. But it's African um, history and culture. African-American history and culture and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those are the three areas and it's 20 courses. So kind of split up and I have 20 in the coming soon area. And my goal is to have a hundred micro learning courses by the end of the year. That is so fantastic. At Spelman about 25 years ago, we started something called African diaspora in the world. It is a required course, four credits in the fall when you first get in and four credits in the spring. Every single student at Spelman College has to take it. So by the time um, everyone graduates, the entire college has taken this course. It is exactly what you've said. It, it, it looks at the continent of Africa and the uh, uh, a kind of origins and of uh, course with the early contributions. It looks at the diasporic pathways into Europe, into Asia, into the West Indies and the Americas. Um, and it lifts up the big thinkers along the way and documents the contribution. So if I walked out here on campus and I walked up to a student who's a junior and I said, tell me about Marcus Garvey, she would have no problem. If I said, tell me about Ida B. Wells, she can rattle yes. it right off the top of her head. You know, she can quote Nikki Giovanni and she can quote, you know, Toni Morrison. And I just love that aspect because it says, it fills up our students in that first year with a knowledge of the richness and the depth and the complexity of their history and culture. And I think that's, I, th I think that's a vital part of the success um, that, that comes in, it, it becomes, you become filled with that. And when you go out, when you leave here, um, it's very hard to topple you over, right? Because you've got all of that as your ballast. 
And that's something that I'm so glad you brought that up because that was why I started the platform last month. I was posting a lot over the past year since the murder of George Floyd. I mm -hmm. had been posting prolifically on LinkedIn about Black history and culture. Which is how you became a top voice for the record. Which is how I become, became a top voice in education. And I had so many people tell me, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know about that fact. I didn't know about that person. I didn't know about that figure in Black history. And I started to get very like interested in the idea of, I went to a Black, a predominantly Black high school, even though I went to a PWI after. And it was really ingrained in us to understand about, we read Marcus Garvey, we read all of the, the uh, Sheikh Ante Jaap and some of the African thought leaders from the 70s. What can we do better, do you think, as a country, higher education, even K through 12, to ensure that our young Black children, the next generation of leaders are taking African-American history. We've, you have shown a wonderful example of how you're doing that, making it a core class, making it something mandatory. So every student lives, leaves that campus filled with a sense of self. But what I'm finding is that when I'm looking at some of the studies where we're looking at K through 12 and even on college campuses is that a lot of K through 12 uh, districts across the country don't require black studies or African okay. studies or African-American studies. What do we do to, it was Black History Month right now. What do we do to ensure that it's not just 28 days that all through the year, we're instilling that same sense of pride. Like you said, you can't topple someone over if they know they have the sense of self. They right. know about Marcus Garvey. They know about Ida B. Wells. But if someone never learned that and they haven't been instilled, that hasn't been instilled in them, what can we do better as a sector to ensure that we're doing that for our young folk? So K, K through 12 is a big sector to, to tackle, but I'll just yeah. tell you one little project that we um, almost fell into at Spelman College, which has now become, from my point of view, a really major investment that the college is willing to make. Um, about three years ago, I, I invited uh, the principals from our local schools to come have dinner at Reynolds Cottage. Um, I wanted to get to know them, get to know the schools in our neighborhood, because I know a lot of our students were going out to volunteer at these schools. If you're experiencing any level of marketing challenge right now, you've got to ask the hard questions and you need answers. Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your future students? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience and future students will respond to? And are you spending more time building reporting and listening in on what your students really want. All of these questions will get answered when you sign up for your free consultation with MDT Marketing. Head to mdtmarketing.com slash edup, submit your information, and talk to MDT. Don't go it alone. Find the right partner. The guys at MDT, the team at MDT is absolutely amazing. Whether your challenge is the cost of inquiries, your melt, your branding, the bad and incomplete information that come with your inquiries, Whatever it is, an audit of your challenges will help your institution, and it's free. mdtmarketing.com slash up. So we have six schools, uh, uh, two elementary, two, um, three middle school, and one high school. And I started the evening out by showing them all the great things that Spelman College students were doing in their schools. And then at the end of dinner, I said to all of them, I said, now tell me, what would what would be most helpful from your perspective to have us do in the schools? To a one, the principal said, teach our students to read. You could have blown me away. I would have expected that from elementary, but middle school and high school? 
So I, we went back to uh, the head of our, our, our community service um, division, which is a, called the Bonner Program. And I went to them and I said, how can we do this? How can we take Spelman students who volunteer anyway and make this into a literacy program? So we actually went to our education department and we had there a faculty member, black faculty member whose specialty is literacy and families. And she helped us think about how we shape a literacy program for fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth grades. And for the next two years, we trained Spelman students, over a hundred of them, sent them out to about three or three, four, I think it was five schools over a period of two years. And in two years, Liz, there were absolutely extraordinary improvements for the 100 or 150 students who were tutored by our students. And so it's, I say, I talk about the reading because you have to get to the reading before you can get to the content, right? And, and that's a serious um, barrier in many of our urban K through 12 schools. And if it's not solved in that period of third, fourth, fifth grade, by the time you get to middle school, it's really, it's a really hard problem to solve and almost impossible in, in, in high school. So, so and understanding that and then understanding what kind of content you can bring into a literacy program, then you can excite the students about reading and also about reading about themselves and about their experiences. So I see this as a, a sleeping giant. You know, if you took all the hundred, you know, 100, 150, 200 colleges across the country, and you could marshal those resources to get into the schools and use the content, the cultural content of the population you're serving, that could be, that could be extraordinary. You're absolutely right. And I think that strikes to the heart of the matter, right? When we're differentiating and making sure that we're teaching the children and having them read stories that they really care about. Right. And I love that concept of showing them, I think Dwan Warmike might've been one of the ones who said this as well. If you can see it, you can be it. Mm -hmm. And showing them that you have these extraordinary mentors and young people that can model and teach them about their own greatness, I think that's like a revolutionary. Like you said, it's like a sleeping giant. Yeah. It absolutely is something that can li literally change the, yeah. the, the, the black community as we know it. One thing that a lot of people have speculated about, and I'm gonna turn it over to Joe in a second. And I have this other question that I really wanna get your input on. You talked about the idea of, or actually the, the statistic as far as Spelman graduating so many STEM um, PhD, mm -hmm. women in PhD programs through the STEM um, area. And one of the statistics that I read uh, lately was about the wealth gap, the, the wealth gap um, between Black Americans and the rest of the country, um, particularly those uh, in the dominant, the, the majority culture. And one of the, the suggestions was that we need to get more students interested in STEM in order to close that wealth gap, because it's one of the areas that students are going to be able to um, be more effective in terms of being able to get jobs that will uh, that they they don't know about for one because they're, they're not aware of these types of careers then also they're able to get jobs that will be um, financially rewarding for them so that they're able to buy homes create generational wealth and things like that 
what are some of the things that you're doing to encourage the STEM area and help those that are interested in pursuing that? And then for you as someone that um, comes from the arts and from that culture, how do we balance that? You know, How do we make sure that uh, our students are exposed to a wide variety of careers and I think for me, I was, a, I was a journalism major, I was a writer, but my parents steered me away from writing and from something like that because they felt like, well, how are you gonna be able to make money? How are you gonna be able to be successful? And I, I think there's always a push and pull, I think in our communities, we wanna steer our students mm -hmm. into STEM and into computers and engineering, but also as a, someone that's a writer and someone that ended up teaching English composition and, and, and creative writing, how do we also encourage them like you have to go into areas that really help them to pursue their their artistic side as well i think that's such a such a, a juggling act i think in our community right it it it, it can be I, I you know i'm an art historian by training yes um so i i and i was an english major in undergraduate school so i have a a, a very keen appreciation for the humanities. If you guys start talking English composition, I'm out of here. I got to <laughs> You be quiet. Yeah. All right, all right. You were communications major. Uh, I'm out of here. Yeah. Love it. Um, but but I think that uh, we in in this country, I, I think we make a um, a false distinction between the arts and science. Uh, really what you want is you want a creative thinker. And that creative thinker can, can function in a lot of different spheres. They, they can be um, a STEM major, and yes, about one third of our, our students are um, STEM majors, but the other two thirds are in the arts, the humanities, and the uh, social sciences. And uh, just as we have STEM majors who have to, to uh, master certain quantitative knowledge, we actually now have a data science initiative that will require students who are studying history or sociology to also have some data analytic skills as well so that we expect. We have a required computer science course that's required for all uh, students uh, throughout Spelman College, but we also have a, an arts course <laughs> that is a requirement for, for all students. So this, we, we think it's extremely important to have uh, uh, the benefits of a full liberal arts um, education. So um, yes, we'll continue to be strong in STEM and we've just been designated a center of excellence for minority women in STEM by the Department of Defense. And so we've added um, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning to this sort of slate of fields. Um, then our students can study at the Army Research Lab with some of their researchers, as can our, our faculty. As I've said, even as we think of data science as a major and a minor, we're still thinking of it in, as in its relationship to the liberal arts. If you are a journalist, you have to be able to manage big data sets and sift through uh, various comparative uh, uh, data and read data visualization. So these are these are what we're trying to do is to arm our students with all the skills they'll need, they will need. And one of the most important is the ability to think imaginatively. So about four years ago, we set up something called an innovation lab. And you go into the innovation lab and there's, there's 
all kinds of different technologies available to you. You can be an English student, a dance student, it doesn't matter. You come in with a project, we, help, we teach you the technology, and then you can create whatever project it is you want to create. Maybe you're a dancer and you want a costume that lights up when you're on the stage. You can create it there. We had uh, biology students who partnered with computer science students to build a drone out of synthetic cellulose um, that actually worked. Uh, so we, we, we invite that kind of playfulness because we feel that expands your capacity to think and to, and to grow. And we just added a, we just announced a center for black entrepreneurship. So another way of creating wealth is to, to support um, small businesses, startups, um, products that can be licensed or patented. And, um, you know, so we really are encouraging that kind of self-agency as well. Do you see just a, a current events question on the entrepreneurship? Do you see more interest in the entrepreneurship or less because of, the, of COVID right now? Oh, my goodness. Entrepreneurship has exploded on the Spelman College campus. Uh, we have seen, you know, in the beginning, it was, you know, maybe 25, 30 students. I would say now we're seeing anywhere from 100 to 125 students who show up at our clubs, who show, who take our courses, who come to the innovation lab, who work on projects, who already have small businesses that they're managing even as they are students. I had one student who showed me her website and she has designed glasses with lens that cut down on the glare of looking at a computer all day. And I said, well, this is great. She said, yeah, and I'm talking to Gucci about a license. I thought, well, that's a serious conversation. For sure, a good conversation, that's for sure. Well, let me ask you this, because you're, you're talking about data, analytics, technology, AI. As you well know, um, you're in the space, one of the, oh, I don't know, questions for higher education has been, are we going to be able, able to prepare students for the future of work? And as an institution, can we be elastic enough to create programs, uh, look at innovations that are going to, uh, you know, that are going to prepare students for the jobs that don't exist yet? So how do you predict what those jobs or those programs are going to be? But it's a huge responsibility for higher education in general. It, it, a even bigger responsibility for HBCU presidents, I would say, because you have the you have a lot of black students in your hands who are already marginalized, uh, wealth, uh, you know, equity, and so on. And so that w there has to be a great responsibility to look at the future and say, how do we ready ourselves? I know you've talked about it a little bit, but how in depth and how often do you think about the future and moving Spellman towards? What, needs to, what it needs to provide for the future of work. We talk about it all the time. <laughs> and, 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 and there's a real urgency now uh, to, talk, to talk about that. There's some futurists who are predicting that as many as 80 million jobs will be lost uh, in the coming years. And, and not just the jobs that are you know, uh, immediately apparent, like if we have self-driving cars, you know, will we need taxi drivers or you know, you, you know, UPS? drivers or bus drivers or, or what have you. But there'll be other functions that can be automated or um, um, that don't have to be done by someone sitting at a desk or a person, they, they, they can be actually replicated by a machine. 
um, and 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 that it will happen very quickly, and that it will happen in large industries like energy, for example, or transportation, as another example. So, so there's no question that there is a feeling on the part of many um, that that we're at a at a moment, sort of like the industrial revolution made all these changes, and all of a sudden the nature of work changed. The nature of work will change in the next 10, 10 years, um, if not less. So thinking about that in, in, in a big sort of 30,000 feet um, way, I think what we want to do always is to be able to send our students out with some fundamental competencies, writing. They, got, they have to write, they just have to write well. Um, they have to speak in a way that is persuasive. They have to, I was just listening to a, a one hour talk by James Baldwin and I thought, oh my God, how did this man ever, um, he, he speaks flawlessly, fluently, um, with not even any hesitation. Um, would that we could get all of our students to walk out speaking like, like him or Tony Morrison. They have to have computational skills. They have to have analytical skills. There are certain competencies we have to make sure that, that, that they have. But the most important thing that we have to teach our students is how to learn and how not to be fearful of what we don't know. How to walk into a situation where we don't know anything and, and have the tools and the intellectual expansiveness and resilience to be able to say, okay, I'm starting from square one, but I can do this. Um, because, because things are gonna change so rapidly. So there's no such thing as preparing somebody for a job because that job's gonna be obsolete in five years, maybe less in less time than that. Um, the way journalists do their jobs now are, are completely different from the way, and the, and the outlets for journalists now are completely different from the way they were 10 years ago. So, so we, have to, we have to teach that, that resilience. And that's why I say, when I talk about um, creativity, being a way of getting people into a space where they can try things out, where they can fail, where they can, where they can take up, up um, things that are unfamiliar to them and really push themselves in a way that they understand how to be, keep being pioneers. Um, as they as they are learning and as they are thinking. And I'll give you one example. And that is at the age of 46, which was a long time ago for me, um, I and my husband decided that we were going to learn to ski. And um, it's daunting. Not in Atlanta say. though, you must not have been in Atlanta. <laughs> What's that? No, it you weren't in Atlanta. Atlanta. <laughs> it was not in Atlanta. Um, but uh, every year we would go out back on the slopes for, and for about 20 years, we really worked at it. So that now actually we can ski. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't enter any Olympic competitions, but in fact, it's something we learned. And, and what I learned there is that as an adult, it is really a challenge to make yourself a novice. But we have to prepare our students to do that. We have to prepare them to be fearless and be novices and be comfortable with that and be able to just learn and keep learning and relearning. You know, Liz, I'll pass it back to you, but I just want to note, as I hear you talking, Mary, I hear you stressing the importance of liberal arts too. 
because in I, I'm a big, you know, I believe in technology and the future of work. And I think the industries are moving that way. You take cloud computing, take uh, this coding bootcamp. And, and oh, by the way, we're going to be on our tablet. We're going to be on our phone and we're going to be sitting in the doctor's office and not talking to anybody. We're going to forget how to have a conversation about disagreement, which is what has got us in this societal mess in the first place, right? We, we can't have a conversation anymore. We have to choke somebody up or we have to smash them in the face. And, and you look at the, all these examples because people just can't have a conversation and disagree and then come together for a better solution. So the liberal arts and the humanities are so important to I don't know, identity and character and all of these things that I think help our communities in general be able to, to function in the future. Is that just me or is that you guys, you guys too? No, I, I think you are absolutely right. Um, again, I, as I said, I was listening to, I was actually listening to James Baldwin and William Buckley. <laughs> William Buckley was like a total right-wing conservative and they were, um, they, they had a, a, not a conversation, but a presentation of both sides of the, uh, an, an argument about race in the United States. And it, it, was, it, it was so different from the quality of conversation and discourse that we hear today. And, and it's, an, it's, it's an art form, it takes patience. You have to listen carefully. You, you have to marshal your facts. You have to present them in a way that uh, is um, persuasive. So it's it, it is a, it's a skill set, and and we don't spend probably don't spend enough time on that skill set, but we pay a lot of attention to that at Spelman, a lot of attention to that. What can we do to encourage young Black women? Because I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question. I was looking at an article or. Um, on the website of the Thurgood Marshall um, Scholarship Fund. And they had highlighted this fact that there are not enough women of color that are in leadership roles across um, higher education, particularly in um, the president's role of colleges and universities across the country. I think they, they hadn't really um, been able to identify how many black women, but they, they thought it was maybe 13 or so. So a very small number of colleges um, and universities across the country are led by black women. What can we do as a sector to really encourage the leadership and um, nurture black women in leadership in colleges and universities across the country? Because one thing I've noticed as being in higher ed for 20 years, we just don't see enough. I'm so inspired by you, of your story, of everything you've accomplished. And what can we do to make sure that we see more representation? As we all know from Census Bureau, um, children of color, um, black, uh, biracial, mm -hmm. Latino, all these children are gonna be like 50% over the next 20 mm -hmm. years or so of young people, of college students. And we need to ensure that they see adequate representation, that their needs are met. What can we do to uh, nurture that and grow that in, as a sector? So I'm going to tell you, I mean, to answer that, I'm going to tell you a story of when I first came to New York University. I, I, I was not, you know, my, my background, I, I um, was not in higher ed early in my career. I was in museums and, and you know, city government. And so I, I came to higher ed sort of mid-career. And I came to New York University. It was the first place where I, I, I worked in higher ed. I was a dean. 
of a, this school of the arts. I, I, I had, I knew nothing about being a dean. Honestly, it was, it was completely um, strange and foreign to me. Um, and when I sat down to try to figure out the school of the arts at, at that time, and still is a, a mostly a production school. You, you learn to dance by dancing. You learn to filmmaking by making films. And um, I remember I was trying to figure out how did students go to class and then after class go and get all their film equipment and how do we know how to give them the right film equipment and all of that. And there was a black woman um, who worked in one of the departments and every time I asked a question, she knew the answer. And, and, and finally I invited her up into my office and I, I put a whiteboard up and I said, you remember the film Philadelphia? I said, tell it to me like I'm a three-year-old. Mm -hmm. Explain to me how this works. She drew a chart with every day of the week and every course in it. And she showed me all the different equipment that you needed for each course. And, the, and it was from that that we completely restructured our, our, I said to myself, that is the most, one of the most talented people I've ever met. And she was working in some obscure position uh, doing, I, I don't know what, and we, you know, and I, 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 I promoted her to assistant dean and then associate dean, and now I think she's senior associate dean. The fact of the matter is, is the talent is there. And I just say that to say the talent is there. You have to look for it. You have to be open to it when you see it, no matter where it is. It may not be where you think it should be, right? And not be. May, she was not in a lineage to become a dean, but she knew what she needed to know. And she turned out to be one of the smartest, best managers I've ever met in my life. And, and, I, I'm con and the longer I have been in higher ed, the more often I have seen that example. I have seen talent everywhere. You just have to pay attention, listen to, what people are saying to you and be willing to step out of conventional lines of ladders of success and bring, bring that talent in and develop it where you find it. But make no mistake, it's there. <laughs> I love, that was such a word. I love what you said. I wrote that down, the talent is there. You have to look for it. I, I, I just love that concept of developing talent, not being so narrow-minded or so focused on well, what does talent actually look like, but the idea that you were able to see someone and say, wait a second, this person has a lot of potential, but they're just, that potential hasn't been harnessed in the right way. I love that because I feel as though that is really what's needed. Leadership that has the ability to reimagine is not just stuck in one way of thinking. I think that's something that has unfortunately tended to happen in higher education, maybe because you came from a creative background or you came from outside of the traditional mind frame, you were able to think outside the box and say, wait a second, let's look at this a little bit different, which I love that. That really speaks to the heart of what we need. I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew that this woman knew more than anybody else. So. <laughs> I love everything that you've said today. I want to be, we definitely want to be respectful, cognizant of your time. You spent such an amazing time with us. This has been by far my favorite conversation. We've been doing this for a year and I have loved everything that you said. Your smile is beautiful. Your, your spirit is so warm. You're so genuine. 
your leadership ability and everything you've accomplished since you've been at Spelman is a testament to what you stand for, what you've done over your career. So I so thank you for spending this time with us, Joe. Thanks you as well. We both thank you for everything that you've shared with us today. Your insights that you've shared have been phenomenal. And I have a page full of notes, like not even exaggerating (laughs) here of all of your gems of wisdom that you dropped. Every time you dropped a gem, I was like trying to catch them because I was like scrambling to write my notes. So I so thank you, Dr. Mary Schmidt-Coleman. This has been like a phenomenal hour that you've spent with us. I want to wrap up by asking you two final questions. Okay. Which would be, First, if there's anything that we didn't have an opportunity to, to touch on that you're doing at Spelman, any things, initiatives, or anything that you just want to leave our audience with in terms of um, what you might want them to know about your institution. And the second question being, what do you see as the future of higher education? So I, I, the thing that matters most to us at Spelman is that we become that place where every single woman who enrolls here graduates and 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 that we create and not just you know walks out of here with a degree but walks out of here with a pathway for the rest of her life of lifetime learning of lifetime work of lifetime connectedness to uh, a community that that's what we want we want every woman to come here and and that 75 percent is great I think we will not stop until it's a hundred percent because that's what I believe that these women are so talented, so hardworking, so determined that that's what we, that's what they deserve. So that, that's uh, number one. And what was your second question? Just what you see as the future of higher education. You know, I think this is, a, may sound like an odd thing to say, but I think COVID was so disruptive so quickly and we had to be so um, uh, responsive and improvise and, and, and really uh, get things going without a lot of prior thought and planning. I think it accelerated most of us to think much more creatively and much more innovatively about how we can deliver that education most effectively. That, there, that we now have the sense that we have more options, that are, uh, there are more things that we can do to support our students, to make ourselves affordable, to um, open up <clears throat> higher education for lifelong learning, that um, I think the best institutions are gonna take advantage of that and higher education is about to become a very exciting place. Well, we can't wait. And we know Spelman is going to be on the cusp of all of that. We thank you so much, Dr. Schmidt. Mary Schmidt Campbell, I'm just like so beside myself. I am so, I have not stopped smiling this whole interview (laughs) because this has been like, a rare treat is something that I know. It's true. I called Liz before the episode. I said, don't screw it up. Don't screw it up, Liz. (laughs) And I told him, you better not screw it up. I know, that's true. (laughs) But I love you. You guys are great. You you ask great questions and you've done your homework and I really appreciate being here. Thank you so much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's possible to be an art historian and futurist at the same time. Absolutely. This has been another episode of the Oedipus Experience with Dr. Mary Schmidt-Campbell, president at Spelman College. It's been an honor, an honor. Thank you so much.
Hey everybody, we hope you enjoyed that episode of the Edup Experience. To learn more about the Edup Experience, please visit our website at www.edupexperience.com and subscribe to our email list. Please share this podcast, head over to Apple, and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And of course, subscribe to the Edup Experience so you're notified when our episodes drop. Here at the Edup Experience, our goal is to make education your business. Thanks for listening.